To understand life, you must first understand death. He who dies with the most toys wins. He who dies with the most toys wins. That, when I was growing up, was written on a red bumper sticker on my grandfather's Jeep. So, he who dies with the most toy wins. And uh, for me and my brothers, our grandfather was our hero. And so, uh, when we saw that bumper sticker, we really thought about those words. He who dies with the most toys wins. And, uh, you know, Grandpa certainly did have a few toys. But what bothered my brothers and I was my grandpa's best friend, Skip. Skip had more houses, more cars. He had a boat, motorcycles, and even two airplanes. And so, not like big airplanes, small, small airplanes. <clears throat> Skip was obviously going to die with more toys than my grandpa. And so I remember being very disappointed because um, Skip, rather than my grandpa, was going to win in the game of life. I wanted to be the grandson of the guy who was the winner. Now that's a goofy story, right? But it illustrates an important truth. The way you understand death impacts the way you live. My understanding of death based on that bumper sticker was that nothing happens after death. Therefore, the important thing is to have more material things than everyone else. Can you imagine what somebody's life would look like if they really believed that about death? Can you imagine how, how, somebody, how selfish somebody would live their life or how arrogant they would be if they had more toys than other people? And in this world, there are many different views of death. I think all of us differ sometimes in, in our view of death. Some people believe in reincarnation. Some believe that God will send them to heaven as long as they don't do really bad crimes. Many don't believe in an afterlife at all. And each of these understandings of death affects the way that people live. So how do you understand death? How does your view of death impact your life every day? Have you ever thought about that? Well, today in Psalm 90, we're going to consider this very thing. Moses was the author of Psalm 90. And he's going to show you that to understand life, you must first understand death. And that's the main point of Psalm 90. So if you're taking notes, you can write that down. To understand life, you must first understand death. And Psalm 90 breaks nicely into three different points. The first point is this. To understand death, you must begin with the eternal God. To understand death, you must begin with the eternal God. That's in verses 1 to 6. And then the second point is to understand death, you must also understand sin. To understand death, you must also understand sin. 
We'll see that in verses 7 to 11. And in verses 9 to 17, we will see that understanding death helps you to live wisely. Understanding death helps you to live wisely. Before we jump into the text, will you please bow your heads and pray with me? Father, we do need you every hour. Lord, we need you in this hour. God, we need you to intervene with our hearts. Lord, by the power of your Spirit, we pray and ask that you open our heart to your word, that you give us hearts that um, thirst for your truth, that thirst for you, thirst for Jesus. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Please listen to Psalm 90 as I, as I read it. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are seventy, or even by reason of strength, eighty. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger? and your wrath according to the fear of you. So teach us to number our days, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants, and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us, and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. So the first step in understanding anything is to begin with God. In verses 1 to 6, Moses is going to help us understand death in the light of an eternal God. And so Moses begins in verse 1 and 2. He says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you have formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And the point here is that God is eternal. You and I have a beginning and an end, but, but God had no beginning and has no end. All generations of mankind have lived in the eternal presence of God. Generations have been born and they've died. But God has always been and he will always be. 
Why does this matter? It matters because you and I and everyone else, we are all plagued by death. And it can seem like there's no hope. Death comes for everyone. But death does not come for everyone. There is someone whom death does not come for, and that is God. The eternal God cannot die, and he cannot be conquered by death. This should produce awe in us. Wow. How great is God that he cannot be touched by death? It should also spark a curious hope in us. If God is more powerful than death, could God somehow help us to defeat death? Now in verse 3, Moses turns his focus to the mortality of man. God is eternal, but man is just a moment. Verse 3 begins, You return man to dust, and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. So look at verse 3. You see the word there, man, return, O children of man. Verse 3, um, that, that word in the Hebrew is actually just, it's the, it's the word Adam. So Adam and man are the same, are, Adam is how you say man in Hebrew. And so, um, this verse here is actually a reference to, uh, to Adam and to Genesis chapter 3. So in Genesis chapter 3, um, Adam, the forefather of the human race, he rebelled against God. And at that moment, sin infected the whole human race, all of Adam's offspring. And so God, in his perfect justice, he cursed mankind, telling Adam, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So that's verse 3. And then in verse 4, Moses simply observes that all people die and literally become dust before the eyes of God. It takes many years for bodies and eventually skeletons to fully decompose. But for God, a thousand years is like a day. It's like a time lapse. In verses 5 to 6, Moses describes the shortness of our life with some word pictures. In verse 5, Moses says, you sweep them away as with a flood. Death is like a flood. There's no stopping it. And like a flood, death takes away everything in its path. Verse 5 also compares our life to a dream. Most people, when we're dreaming, we aren't, aware, we aren't aware of real time. We are just experiencing whatever is happening in our dreams. And so when we wake up, all of a sudden, the dream is over. I think that's how it is with, with death. When we come to die, all of a sudden we realize that life is over. The third image is that of grass. In verses 5 and 6, our lifespan is like grass. We are born in the morning, and we flourish as youth till about noon, and then we fade and we wither by evening. Our whole lifespan, when compared to eternity, is like one day. So do you see how fast life is? When we talk to older people, they'll often tell us how fast life went by. And from the perspective of eternity, we realize that life is a lot faster than we ever thought. Death is coming to you very soon. So this should create in you a sense of urgency. If death is coming soon, like a rushing tsunami, then what should you do? 
Should you ignore it? Should you try to forget about death? By no means. You should confront death head on. And one of the most important things that you need to know in order to confront death is the reason for death. Why do we die? Why are you going to die? Well, verses 7 and 8 explain that you are going to die because of sin. And this brings us to point number two. To understand death, you must understand sin. Listen to verse 7. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. What brings us to our end? Moses says, It's the anger of God. What ultimately kills you? Moses says it's the wrath of God. And why is God so angry at you? What have you ever done? God is righteously angry because of your sin. You've sinned against other people, and ultimately you've sinned against God. Verse 8 says, You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. Death is God's righteous response to sin. It's his good response to sin. This might sound harsh and mean or even somewhat ridiculous, but it only seems that way if you don't understand sin. You see, God created you to image himself. He made you so that you would display on earth God's perfect love and kindness and wisdom and worship. And one of the ways we know that this is true is that we expect these things from the people around us. We expect people around us to be kind to us. We expect them to be patient with us. And we expect people to make good decisions, wise decisions. And when people don't live up to these expectations, we get angry. Because in our hearts, we know that people are supposed to be better. Sin is the word the Bible uses that describes when we don't do the things that God created us to do. And when we do the things that God created us not to do. But what makes your sin most offensive is not the sin itself. It's not just that you are not the perfect person that God created you to be. The most offensive part of your sin is that every sin is a symptom. Sin is a fruit of a heart that hates God. Every time you sin, you are broadcasting to God and to the world the most treasonous and most dangerous lie that has ever been uttered. What is this lie? The lie is this, that there's something more valuable than God. Your sin broadcasts the lie that money is more important than God. Or the lie that sex is more important than God. Or the lie that a healthy body is more important than God. Or sometimes the lie that a person's, that person's acceptance of me is more important than God. God created you to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. 
But as a sinful offspring of Adam, you've been glorifying something else and rejecting God. And so verses 19 to 11 summarize our state as sinners before God. Moses says, For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Death is God's megaphone to a deaf world, to a sinful world. You must face death. You must confess your sin. But who does this, Moses says? Moses says, who considers the power of your anger or your wrath according to to the fear of you? Most people ask, why would I? What's the point of considering that? Am I going to be able to stop sinning? Am I going to be able to beat death? What good will it do for me to dwell on either of those things? Well, if you're asking this question, then you are lacking some very important information. If you're sitting in your chair feeling hopeless in the face of your sin and death, then there is something that you need to hear right now. God, the righteous judge, he is not only holy and full of righteous wrath. God is also overflowing with compassion, with pity, with mercy, with grace, and with forgiveness. And in God's wisdom and power, God made a way to save sinful you and sinful me. And here's how God did it. The Bible teaches us, God reveals to us about himself that he is triune, three persons in one God. God is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And at the right time, about 2,000 years ago, God the Father sent God the Son to earth to become a man, and his name is Jesus. When Jesus came, he came to accomplish one singular mission, and that was to save you from your sin and death. And Jesus accomplished his mission. When Jesus was done, he declared, it is finished. But how does Jesus save you from your sin? Well, first, Jesus lived a righteous life. From the time that he was born until the time that he died, Jesus did not sin one time. He never broadcasted that lie that something else is more important than God. Jesus actively obeyed and glorified God in everything that he desired, everything that he thought, everything that he did, and everything that he said. And second, Jesus offered his life on the cross as a substitute for all mankind. Listen to how God explains it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. If you look back at, um, at, our, at our text, uh, Psalm 90, verse 8, 
You remember all your iniquities, all of your secret sins that are set before the light of God's presence. Well, when Jesus allowed himself to be nailed to that cross, before the face of God, our righteous judge, all of your iniquities and all of your secret sins were transferred away from you and placed on Jesus for those who believe. And like verse 7, it says, and like verse 7 says, we can put Jesus in there now. Jesus was then brought to an end by God's anger on the cross. And by the Father's wrath, the righteous and innocent Jesus was dismayed. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So your sin was not only taken away and laid upon Jesus, the righteousness of Jesus, that is the righteousness of God, was taken from Jesus and was laid upon you. So if you turn from your sins, and if you turn to trust in Jesus, because of Jesus' finished work on the cross, God can declare that your sins are paid for. In God's eyes, you are no longer a sinner. In Christ, God sees you as the righteousness of God. What is our proof that Jesus succeeded in his mission? Our proof is that three days after Jesus died and was buried, God raised Jesus from the dead. In raising Jesus, God declared to the world that those who trust in Jesus have defeated sin and death along with Jesus. So here's the thing. Death is God's megaphone to a sinful world. You must face your death. You must confess your sins. And you must embrace Jesus as your Savior. If we don't hear this message of death, then we won't turn from our sins. And we'll die in our sins. Hebrews 9 verse 2 says, or Hebrews 9 verse 27 says, It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So after our physical death, judgment is not over. We will all stand one day before God's judgment seat for a final judgment. The book of Revelation describes this judgment. It says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Everyone shares in the first death. But those who die in their sins... Those who do not trust in the person and the work of Christ for salvation will also share in the second death. But what happens if you turn from your sin and trust in Christ before you die? If you do this, God promises eternal life. Not just eternity, but a glorious eternity. According to uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, 
says it like this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So how does all this, how does salvation in Jesus change our view of death? Do we still fear death so much that we pretend it doesn't exist? The Apostle Paul, he described the way that Jesus changed his relationship with death in Philippians. He said, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. Death is no longer something to deny. Death is a message that leads us to eternal life. As sinners with wandering hearts, we need the reminder of death. And Moses, he said it himself in verse 12. He said, So teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. And that's the third and final point in Psalm 90. Understanding death helps you to live wisely. By numbering our days, by realizing that our days are numbered, by facing the truth that death is coming for us in a short number of days, we may get a heart of wisdom. Verses 13 to 17 give us a picture of the wise life. And in verse 13, we see the posture of a wise heart. Moses prays, Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. The wise heart looks to the Lord for salvation and for mercy. The heart that has comprehended the irresistible power of sin and death knows that the Lord is our only hope. How often in a day do you find yourself asking the Lord for mercy? Every day, all day, you face the attacks of sin and the threats of death. But how many times a day do you find yourself praying and asking God for help against these threats? Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy should be a continual prayer throughout your day. The wise are constantly asking God for mercy. What else does a wise life look like? Verses 14 to 17 show us that a wise life means looking to God for joy. God created us for joy. But as foolish sinners, we spend our days looking for joy outside of God. Moses prays in, in verses 14 to 15, Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that, me, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. When you read the Old Testament, you see that God has a promise for his people that one day after this present day of darkness and chaos, the morning will come. And on one hand, this morning has come. When Jesus was crucified on that cross, then he was buried in the tomb for three days, and in the morning on the third day, he rose from the dead. Jesus' resurrection that morning happened because of the steadfast love of God. God's steadfast love for his son and God's steadfast love for his people. So our gathering this Lord's Day is a celebration of the morning that has already come. 
The resurrection of Jesus Christ, which happened that morning, brings us great hope and great joy. And as Christians, now we can rejoice and we can be glad all our days because Jesus is risen. The morning has come. And yet, yet our, although our joy and our gladness, though real, they are also mingled with sorrow and tears in this life right now because we still live in these fallen bodies and in this fallen world. Though we rejoice with our hope, We live in this world with disease, with wars, with great trials inside and outside of us. But praise be to God that we can face these trials with the joyful hope of the resurrection of Jesus. What if we did not have that hope and all we had was the suffering? And there's another morning coming. It's the second coming of Christ. When Christ returns to judge and to rule on earth, the pain and the suffering will go. And all we will be left with is rejoicing and gladness all our days. And so we ask the Lord to come and to bring that joy in the morning. Verses 16 and 17, they give us the final picture of the wise life. And the the final picture is a picture of our work. Before you die, what does wise work look like? For those who have a true understanding of death, they will busy themselves with God's work. Verses 16 and 17 says, Let your work be shown to your servants, and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us, and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Moses ends with a focus on the work of God and the work of God's people. If you're familiar with with the writings of Moses, think about all the things that Moses, um, that he wrote. He's possibly more familiar than anyone in history with the work of God. Moses, he personally penned the account of how God worked to create the universe. Moses also experienced later on He wrote of God's work to save the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. Moses heard God's revelation and experienced God's work as God built a holy kingdom out of this group of idolatrous slaves. Kingdom building is the work of God. Whether it is God's building his kingdom realm in the cosmos, or whether it means God's saving and sanctifying his kingdom citizens, God's work is building his kingdom. In verse 16, Moses asks God to continue his kingdom work. He asks God to show this work to the next generation. And in verse 17, Moses asks God to help his citizens as they participate in building God's kingdom. Verse 17 says, Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. So having been reconciled to God, God's people become kingdom builders. In the Old Testament, kingdom building meant conquering Canaan. It meant planting fields and herding sheep. It meant having lots of children and raising them in the fear of the Lord. It also meant building a temple and providing for the priests. And it meant, most importantly, following the law of God. In the New Covenant... 
Building the kingdom means making disciples of Jesus. It means building the church. Our commission as Christians in the New Testament is not to build a physical kingdom on earth, but to build a spiritual kingdom in these last days. It means that your job, WSBC, is to build the church. Part of building God's spiritual kingdom on earth means glorifying God in our physical jobs. Whether we are in finance or education or real estate or working as full-time parents, etc., through the way that we work, we witness to the reality of God and the gospel. Or we witness to something else, broadcast a lie. Hopefully, those around us, they will see the way we work and they will hear our witness and they will place their faith in the God who we are serving when we work. Another part of our work on earth is ministering to the members of our church. That's what Paul describes in Ephesians chapter 4. Our work is to use the word of God to build up the other members of our church. That's our work. How does all this relate to death? When plagues like viruses, cancer, global warming, or war come with their threats of death, the Christian response should be, it's time to roll up our sleeves and get to work. It's time to witness Christ through the way that we work. It's time to witness through our evangelism. It's time to draw in closer to our church members so that we can build them up. Let those who don't have hope spend their lives chasing more money, more stature, more pleasure, and more entertainment. But let us get to work building the church. And may God bless the work of our hands. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for an opportunity this morning to, to remember death, Lord, and to remember that you have sent your Son to save us from death, Lord, and to reconcile us to you, to help us to begin doing kingdom work with you. Lord, we pray and ask God that you will help us to stay sober and alert in these days, Lord, use death to remind us of the reality, to help us to walk wisely. We ask, God, that you build your kingdom here on earth. Let your kingdom come, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.